Good afternoon, LPs. I will say uh, it feels good to get me out of the interview seat and have a, another episode <laughs> with a, a real and proper guest. You couldn't handle the pressure. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. Very much so. So David, who do we have with us today? We are super lucky to be joined by our advisor at Wave, Ramesh Jahari, who, in addition to being a very, very awesome and critical advisor to us at Wave, is a professor at Stanford of Management Science and Engineering. And he teaches courses on data science and platform and marketplace design, which is all of which is super core to what we do. And then additionally, outside of Stanford and Wave, previously he was head of data products at Upwork. Uh, he took a leave from Stanford to do that. And he's now also a senior advisor to Airbnb, Uber, and Stitch Fix. Really, really critical to the whole Silicon Valley marketplace ecosystem from Stanford to great companies to Wave. We're really lucky to have him here. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me here. Um, you know, it's excited to talk about marketplaces. I could talk about them all day. So uh, it's yeah. literally your job to it's talk about literally my job. Exactly, <laughs> It's my job too. So great. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Everything all about marketplaces, how you start them, how you build them, how you operate them, and, and then how you optimize them at scale. And Ramesh has seen all of it. Let's start with starting. So Ramesh, one of the first things you kind of told us uh, here at Wave is, as we were getting going was about your framework for kind of the three fundamental, I think you call them friction points a marketplace can address, but really like jobs that a marketplace platform does in a market. Can you talk a little bit about them? Yeah. And you know, this whole thing really started when a while back, uh, I was talking to some students about like, you know, what it is we're selling. You know, when you start a business, you think you're selling something. So what is it you're selling? And the initial thought was that like, if, if you look at, you know, say Airbnb, you know, that's a marketplace that's selling lodging. Um, you look at Uber and Lyft, that's like a marketplace that's selling transportation. Um, you look at Amazon, you know, that's a marketplace that's selling goods. And what I thought about that, something made me really uncomfortable about it, which is, you know, when you go to these marketplaces, it's true that you're buying lodging, you're buying transportation, you're buying goods, but you're not buying that from the platform. You're really buying that from sellers on the platform. And so, you know, once you kind of dig into that, you start unpacking it, what you realize is that what the marketplace is selling is actually the reduction of transaction costs between buyers and sellers mm -hmm. on the platform, or to use kind of less academic language, what they're doing is they're just making it easier to trade with each other. So, you know, sellers... Easier even possible. <laughs> even possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. I mean... Um, you know, sellers and buyers are both, in some sense, users of a platform. They're both coming to the platform to get something. And the platform is really, you know, if it's, if it's going to succeed, if it's going to make money, it's going to make money because the friction of being able to trade, and that's where that word, you know, friction comes in that you mentioned earlier, the friction of being able to connect with the other side of the market is either, you know, reduced or completely eliminated in some cases. So, you know, you ask kind of what are those three friction points that I brought up? And that, that really comes out of asking yourself, well, what are the things that have to happen for me to be able to trade with someone on the other side, to connect with someone on the other side? And it's not, let me just preface this by saying this is not my framework. This is just kind of a, a common economic way of thinking about things that have to happen for a buyer and seller to be able to actually connect with each other and and one of them exchange money for goods or services. So the first one of those is kind of in line with what you said, David, you have to know the other side exists. So that's what we call uh, search or search and information costs is basically that one role of a platform is showing you 
if you're a buyer, that there are sellers out there and showing if you're a seller that there are buyers out there. And then the information part of that is just telling you enough about them so you can figure out whether that's someone you want to buy from. Again, like concretely, if you go to you know a site like eBay, you want a used iPad. Well, number one, are there used iPads for sale somewhere in the world? Mm-hmm. And number two, like what do those used iPads look like? Are they scratched up and crappy or are they new and in box? And so, you know, eBay is providing both an inventory of used iPads and enough information about them for you to know if that's the thing you actually wanted to buy. Yeah. Or, or like, uh, you know, Airbnb. I'm trying to remember, I think in the very, very early days of Airbnb, there may have been images, but maybe not. Maybe you could have had listings without them. And like, if you're going to stay in a place, you really want pictures. Like, yeah. A, I can mean, I even, is there a place for me to stay in? But B, like, I want to see it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, and, you know, it's interesting talking about Airbnb, right? That like a big part of, Airbnb as a platform now is thinking about kind of the quality of images that are on the platform. If you're a host and you want to manage your listing, it's pretty important to have professional pictures in place. And that's exactly for this reason, because that's a major source of reducing that uncertainty to the potential guest. Um, and, and Ramesh, how do you think about this first third of the framework, uh, search and information as it applies to Uh, marketplaces like Uber, where the supply is theoretically undifferentiated, where you are actually, in a way, buying from the platform instead of from the supplier. I'm actually going to, let's say, take the opposite side here and say that even though it looks like you're buying from the platform, you're still really buying from the supplier. And to make that precise, we have to talk about what's being sold. So it's true, in one sense, it's undifferentiated. It's just a car. But the thing is, it's not really a car. When you request a ride on Uber, you're requesting transportation from point A to point B at a given time. That's the thing. That's the contract. That's the thing you're buying. So when Uber is trying to figure out what's out there for you, basically the question you're asking is, hey, is there a driver somewhere in the world who's willing to take me from point A to point B at this time? That time is usually right now, but you know, sometimes you're willing to wait a little bit. Uber's job is to inventory whether or not reliable drivers exist that can take you from point A to point B. The reliable part of it is them, you know, Uber, Lyft, trying to make sure that the drivers who are on their platform have sufficiently high quality or trustworthy, reliable enough. And, uh, you know, do they exist? Part of it is, well, do we have supply around? Sometimes you open the app and you get 15-minute ETAs, and that happens basically because they're telling you, look, there really isn't any driver around you that's going to get to you in time to take you where you want to go. So in that sense, you know, I think even with something as highly structured and you know, kind of close to commoditized as rides, there's still this question of, as a user, as a rider, are there cars out there that are willing to take me, you know, from where I'm going now to where I want to go? And if you think back to it, like, it's, you know, it's funny, they're not that old, right? These businesses are not that old. But you go back to like pre-Uber Lyft days, and the think about the friction of figuring that out. I mean, you had to call a taxi company. You're waiting for oh, dispatch. Man. We talked about all, all about this on our Uber and Lyft uh, IPO episode. Yeah. Like, so, so let me not rehash oh, that. Yeah. We, none of us want to relive that <laughs> no. nightmare, right? Oh. So <laughs> the dark days. Basically, the way you're, you think about it then is there's an escalating amount of information that you're getting as you get closer to the transaction. So you you sort of, all you know at first when you say, I want an UberX and it says four minutes is the sort of the type of car you're going to get and about how far away it is. And then even though you click book ride, you still haven't really made the match to purchase from the person that you're ultimately going to purchase from until it tells you, here's the exact person, here's their license plate number, here's their name, here's their car, all that. It it actually goes even further than what you're saying, because sometimes, you know, like um, you request a ride and 
you know, for whatever reason, it turns out that the driver is further away than you thought that, you know, you or the platform thought they'd be like, maybe the platform's out there close by, but they're actually on the expressway. And so then they're like suddenly zooming down. Oh man, I had this happen the other day, literally. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, you know, there's even that window after the match where you might decide actually, this is not quite what I was looking for. Yeah. Let me try again. It's yeah. like they presume so that, the the close of the sale, and but they give you that opportunity to to back out at the last, you know, even right. And I mean, it's partly because of that, right? It's like it's it's like that. You need that information to know if the match is the right one. Just to quickly kind of run through the other two, it's actually good that we talked about search information at that length because a lot of what we're going to continue talking about, I think, is going to focus on search and information. Just to put the hook in, that's going to be kind of the most important distinction between an unscaled and a scaled marketplace is the extent to which it can deal with search and information frictions. But the other two big ones are, okay, let's suppose you found someone to trade with and you know that they have what you want. So an example might be a guest and a host on Airbnb. The host has a listing available on the dates that the guest wants, and the guest likes the look of this listing. What are the remaining issues? The next one is, can we agree on a price? And on terms of trade is what an economist would say. So it's really like, what's the contract between us? What am I getting and what am I paying you? On Airbnb, that's basically like, what's the nightly rate? You know, What's the cleaning fee? What are all those things? Let's say we agree to that. We have the contract. It's in place on Upwork, uh, labor market. You know, this might be like, what are what is the wage I'm going to pay you? How many hours did we agree to? Fixed price versus hourly contract, all that stuff. So that gets agreed to. And the last piece of the puzzle, and the platform oh, can help a lot in the middle oh, too. Oh, for I mean, sure. Yeah. Even from well, certainly in like Uber and Lyft, they're setting the price, right? Like, right. A theme that's probably going to come up is the extent to which a platform is intermediating in helping with that kind of contract setting. And, you know, it's funny, but like one of the earliest examples of a marketplace is really Craigslist. And Craigslist is like the wild, wild west of bargaining <laughs> and negotiation. It's like, that's a place where when it comes to terms it's of trade... It's only doing certain information. Yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. right. It's out here in cyberspace. It might exist in the real world. It might have used to existed. Uh, and this price might be what I'll take. But here's a way to get in contact. <laughs> we, we need to do a Craigslist episode at some point. For it, sure. It's like such a, like the ideals of the beginning of the internet is like, oh yeah, people are good. They'll like do stuff. Like, yeah. oh man. It, it's, <laughs> and, and especially, I think what I love about Craigslist is that like, at least when I started using Craigslist to try to buy or sell stuff, I think I just didn't appreciate the extent to which like you had to be a good negotiator. And that's the, that was the thing that made me appreciate marketplaces where like that negotiation on the contract was a thing they were helping yeah. me with. Oh my God. Imagine if you had to negotiate your the price on Airbnb with every time you stay. Like nobody would use it. Yeah. I mean, only yeah. like people who really like negotiating would use it. Yeah. It's an incredible friction. And, and you know, of course, like listing places to stay, that was a thing that many sites would in principle do. But if the ability to resolve the payments friction is a big one. And then the last one is um, the term of art for it would be policing and enforcement, which is basically like, you know, I can sell you whatever I want and tell you what I'm giving you. But if I don't actually deliver, then it's not really worth much of anything. So on eBay, this would be, you know, someone's got to follow through and make sure that you actually get the goods you paid for on Airbnb. Both sides actually would want guarantees. So for example, you know, if you're a host, you want to know that the guest is not going to destroy your place. Mm -hmm. Airbnb has a host guarantee that helps with that. Um, if you're a guest, you want to know that the host can't just cancel at the last minute and screw you over. So they try to do things to mitigate that risk. On uh, labor markets, it's typically the case that the workers want some guarantee they're going to get paid for work they do. Amazon Mechanical Turk has this issue where if you're a worker, 
you know, you can often find yourself in a situation where you're doing work and you actually don't really get compensated the way that you would have expected to because the guarantees aren't really in place for that. It's important for platforms to help that entire chain. Mm -hmm. It's not just finding someone. It's not just knowing enough about them. That's searching information. It's not just arriving at a contract, knowing who's paying what uh, for what in return. It's also knowing that that's executed, enforced, and delivered. So that's the whole chain. And you know, back to your comment, David, marketplaces that work really help with all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are, and, and those are what I call We see that like a lot in the entrepreneurs, especially first-time marketplace entrepreneurs. They start and they're like, oh, great. I'm just going to solve the search and information issue. And then... While I'll have a you know billion dollar company, and like a whole lot of the early kind of finding product market fit phase for marketplaces is around like okay you, we have a market that we think is interesting you can solve search and information but then you gotta create the incentives and dynamics such that like the sides are actually going to interact with each other organically and like that comes down to all this stuff in the middle often i already hinted or a few minutes ago that that it's important to distinguish between search and information and these other frictions and the reason is pretty simple if you're starting a marketplace then you don't have any liquidity so talking about search and information is a bit silly i mean It'd be great if I have the most amazing search tool in the world for freelancers. But if I have no freelancers, that's not really doing anyone any good. I guess what I'm fond of telling people when I teach this kind of stuff is that, you know, when you're starting a marketplace, don't start a marketplace. And figure out why are people going to show up in the absence of you solving the search and information problem. And it's interesting because like what you said is true. Most people associate marketplaces with solving that search and information piece. But to get started often, you need hooks that are not about search and information. They're about something else. So, you know, some really uh, fun examples I like here, you know, one uh, one platform that we used when my kids were a little bit younger in the city is Urban Sitter, which is a, a platform to find babysitters. Anybody who's hired a babysitter knows this. You know, you arrive at the end of the night and you don't have any cash in your wallet. <laughs> and that's a total pain. You know, how are you going to pay the babysitter? And, and so, like, there's a very simple friction there, which is just if I could just pay with a credit card, that would solve that problem. And that's basically it. You know, that's, that's a product that yeah. what friction is that addressing? It's addressing the, this, like, bargaining and negotiating, the, basically the payments friction. Yeah, square you, for babysitters. Yeah, <laughs> and you get, that, you get that addressed. You get people signed up with their Facebook networks. And suddenly what's happening is you're building out the network on both sides organically because people are having this payments friction addressed. And now you're building up liquidity. You build up liquidity. Suddenly you can actually do something about search and information. And, uh, you know, Urban Sitter in their trajectory was able to change their monetization approach from getting you to pay so that, you know, you were basically being able to use your credit card to something where they could charge you for contacts with babysitters and so on once they had a little more scale. Yeah. This was a a big kind of eye opener for, for us at Wave when we were starting and, and so much so that we actually had Ramesh come and talk to our investors this year at our annual meeting, mostly around this topic of like, hey, not all marketplaces can or should actually start as marketplaces. Like sometimes you need to do things to, to kickstart the market to be able to actually then build into a marketplace. I'm not sure about this term, but I, I think calling it like hacking the cold start is not unreasonable because it's probably going to be the case that there's something bespoke about it in each setting. Now, that said, I think there's a few things that, you know, one can think about that maybe at least help give you like patterns. So, okay, the first of those we kind of already alluded to, which is, you know, look at the target 
that your you know target market area that you're thinking about and ask yourself of those other two frictions is there something I can address mm-hmm. like I said often that's payments um, mm. sometimes it's you know um, it's guarantees it's it's providing confidence and quality or, or making sure that people know what they're getting this is often the case in labor markets in particular mm-hmm. where you know you're not in the same place how do you know that what this person is telling me they're doing is actually getting done yeah um, or even uh, our portfolio company Quotapro which is a, a tech enabled scrap metal recycling brokerage we were just talking about this today like if you just threw up an open marketplace and said like, hey, I've got scrap metal to trade, it wouldn't work at all. Like you would have so much fraud and so many claims and all this. And like the big thing, one of the big things that Quotapro did in the beginning was do policing and enforcing and say like, hey, like we're actually documenting and we know what the materials are that are going into each of these containers. I think escrow in general is a really good way to accomplish this. If you're trying to figure out, you know, what is going to be the tool that gets me to have uh, supply and demand sort of converging in into my software, even though it's not a marketplace, like just offering good escrow service that seems like it has the right feature set for the people in that discipline seems like a really good way to just create some value out of the gate without already having massive supply and demand on the platform. It's interesting you mentioned escrow. Um, you know, with Odesk, uh, which was the predecessor to Upwork, where you know you mentioned earlier, I was on leave there running data products. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about Odesk was that they have uh, both employer and freelancer guarantees, and the guarantees basically tell the freelancer, "Look, if you work an hour, you're going to get paid for that hour," and they tell the employer that if we told you the freelancer worked an hour, then they worked an hour, and you know that was really important because. What they did is they instituted this kind of time tracking and and like keyboard uh, and like mouse event yeah, tracking software. You could think of that as kind of oppressive, but the idea from the freelancer side is like, look, this monitoring is allowing Odes to certify to the employer that you were doing what you know you told them you were doing for that hour. And, and you're going to get paid because we can do yeah. that. We can hold funds in escrow, which is exactly what you brought up, and then you're going to get paid. Yeah, it's not like if you were a salaried employee and this were happening, that would be like That'd 1984. Be, right. But here, you're working for lots of people. Like you want to ensure that you can get your money. Right? Exactly. I think that's a great point. And that that idea of setting up trust in an environment where trust is naturally hard to come by, it, you know, it helped them kind of get to the point where there was a little bit of scale. Yeah. Yeah, these are all these things that like you don't necessarily think like, oh, I want to start again. You want to start a marketplace. So many people's minds go to the search and information problem right away, yeah. and it's like solve some of these other problems first, right. and then let's talk about search and information. Yeah, and I wanted to mention just a couple others on this cold start issue. One of them is kind of obvious, but it needs to be thrown out there, which is just pure subsidy. Mm-hmm. And you know, you look at some of the markets that kind of started. I mean, capital is obviously cheaper now than it usually has been. <laughs> and um, certainly, one way you could solve this problem is basically by subsidizing one side of the market to bring it on. Subsidies can amount to like giving away something for free. It can also literally be paying. So let's say that you're in a labor market, you need supply in the form of workers or freelancers to be around. You can offer literally like payments to make that happen. So that's one. And then the last one I wanted to mention is actually uh, a kind of an interesting growth hack, which is to think about marketplaces where buyers can become suppliers. Um, So think about eBay. If you used eBay and you had a good experience as a buyer, you're much more likely to be someone who's going to go sell something on eBay in the future. Um, you know, Airbnb Reed, too, yeah. Yeah, Reed Hoffman is fond of mentioning this as an example of kind of how to get a marketplace going. If you can see in a situation in which maybe there's a, there's a kind of a side of a buyer that could be a seller, then if you can tap into that, that's like a, a built-in way to get the engine humming. 
Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search guidance or market outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature along allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R no e q u a r t r dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter you've talked to us a little bit about uh, you know this continuum of you know you've got a peer marketplace on one end you know in the middle you might have something like a, a platform we can maybe come back to that maybe not but in the beginning you could have some like the simplest instantiation of a of a entering a market would be just as a service. Would you consider that almost like a subsidy? Like say, given market, I know there's demand for something, might be hard to attract supply. What if I just go employ a bunch of supply and then use that as a sell that as a service to demand? Is that a good like route to potentially becoming a marketplace? Or? Yeah, I mean I think, you know, when we had that conversation about service then platform then marketplace, you know, I think part of what we were getting at there is that, you know, the service side of it is really kind of addressing one of these frictions that we talked about early on. I mean, one thing to keep in mind is there isn't really anything else on the table. You don't want to ultimately be in the business of selling something. You want to be in the business of monetizing these frictions. And I already laid out what they are, and there really isn't (laughs) anything else. So you kind of know that if you're selling that service, that the service is really trying to address one of these. Like payments would be Mm -hmm. a service, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're a payments processor, like that's kind of the service you're offering. When do you turn into a platform? I I think my view of that was that that really happened when the data that you were collecting through the service was making you much smarter about both sides of this market. And you really become a marketplace when you're able to then deliver on search information and matching. A different way to think about that kind of service initiation piece of this really is that like that's that's a different way to talk about what it means to start by minimizing one of the other two frictions and then, you know, getting yourself bootstrapped. 
Yeah. Cool. Well, our, our last sort of topic for starting a marketplace was addressing the cold start problem, but I feel like we've addressed it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Great. We have solved the world's problems already. We can all go home now. No. <laughs> Turns out after you start a marketplace as Airbnb and Uber and Stitch Fix and Upwork and others can tell you, you still have a long way to go. Let's talk about the the building phase. Like, okay, you've started something, you know, whether you're fully on the continuum of to a, a full marketplace and you're doing information and search and information yet and discovery uh, or not, you have something going on. What are the key things during this phase? Like, what do you want to be like capturing uh, and building, uh, you know, about attributes about supply and demand, various data signals, propensity to transact? Uh, yeah, I, th- I actually think that's a really, really good and, and kind of very timely question as well. Because I've, I've been thinking a lot about what scale means. So as an example... Let's say I give you two different marketplaces. One of them I tell you has like 10 million buyers and sellers on each side of the platform. And the other one I tell you has only like 10,000 buyers and sellers on each side of the platform. We can think of examples of each kind. I mean, one market where I talked to someone recently is RigUp, which is a labor market for contractors that work on on energy platforms. Yeah, really and, interesting company. Yeah, and you know that's clearly quite a bit smaller than say something like LinkedIn, right? So definitely there's markets at all scales. I mean, I think we're all conditioned to think that like the 10 million, 10 million market is inherently just a bigger market, a more scaled market, probably a more sustainable market than the 10,000, 10,000 market. And I think one thing I'm really starting to grapple with is that that may not be true. Mm-hmm. And the reason that might not be true is because even though you've got 10 million and 10 million, if you haven't really found a way to make matches efficiently between them, if you haven't delivered a lot of value to either side, it kind of doesn't matter how many people are signed up. Mm-hmm. You know, when we count profiles, we're really just counting the number of signups we got. That may not mean anything when it comes down to the actual right. liquid matching. Because LinkedIn, have. you know, is not like you could call it a marketplace, like, but like, there's not a lot of transacting that's happening on the platform. There's definitely a marketplace. Uh, certain of their businesses are marketplaces. So, like, you think at, of LinkedIn Recruiter. Now, I'm not going to make the case that this is actually true, but you could one could postulate that AngelList their recruiter tools are actually better than LinkedIn's recruiter tools because everybody on it is either looking to join a startup or a startup. Whereas LinkedIn, it's like this whole morass of everyone ever and all of the jobs ever. And like, maybe it's harder to make those matches and bring the right high quality candidates onto the search results. And the first 10 results on the page, when you compare it against, hey, everybody on this other place is either a startup or looking to join a startup. Yeah. And and actually, honestly, I probably don't even need to be here. You really the nail on the head for kind of what I was about to, to bring up, which is the, the reason I bring up this like 10,000 versus 10 million example is that 10,000 might be the better play when you're able to deliver a much more kind of known sense of quality on each side of the market, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, why is rig up kind of an, a compelling idea? It's because there's enough structure in what it means to be a contractor on an oil rig that they can actually uh, deliver a matching process that's really tailored to that environment. Why is it hard when you try to make matches on LinkedIn? It's basically exactly what you just said. It's that there's so much heterogeneity that you've got this platform now that has the benefits of liquidity, but the curse of liquidity, which is that you better be able to explain every single variety of things that can show up on your platform. Mm -hmm. It's not that it's unsolvable. I mean, you look at Amazon, obviously, it's like a massive marketplace and they've gotten pretty good at it. But it does mean that um, sometimes there will be value there on the table by delivering more structured matching and marketplace design around 
something which is maybe you know carved off. Yeah. And so, so for a company and for entrepreneurs working on on something like this, it sounds like what you would want to do is like really understand what the nature of a transaction is and what are the propensity. To, what are, what are the attributes of each side that uh, supply and demand are looking at when they're evaluating the other side and do everything you can to build product around that. Is that like, is that a good? Yeah, I think that's right. And what's interesting about what you just said is, you know, I, I previously emphasized a lot that bootstrapping might amount to reducing bargaining, negotiation, policing, enforcement costs. But actually, there's a way in which bootstrapping might involve reducing information costs, right? Mm -hmm. It may very well be that even in the absence of liquidity, if you just made it easier for users to be able to evaluate quality, maybe you do that by giving them benchmarks that make it easy to compare against, right? Like as soon as you've done that, you've really made it, you've already kind of potentially gotten that engine humming a little bit. And what I find interesting is that sometimes scaling back your focus uh, can actually really help you in designing that product better. You know, and so I know that in the lead up to our interview here, you know, you had pointed me to a podcast of Bill Gurley's that you were listening to. And I, I think it was interesting. Like one of the points he makes there is that... This is... Uh, Bill was on the Invest Like the Best podcast where he makes this point. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. And, and so what, what was cool is that, you know, this idea that like maybe you started something in a city and you're scaling up really well in that city. Our instinct is like, oh, yeah, let's go find 15 other cities I could do this in. But maybe the right answer is you just you should nail it in that city mm-hmm. because, you know, maybe there's something unique about the city that you're in that's giving you a chance to really scale up. And I think something you should not forget when you're running a marketplace is, you know, the phrase I like to use is durable market advantage. And what you really want is you want to be in a place where you've attained the barrier to entry that's implicit in what a marketplace is. Because if all the buyers are in one place, that's where the sellers want to be. If all the sellers are in one place, that's where the buyers want to be. If you nail that in that one city, you've bought yourself time to figure out what needs to happen elsewhere. Um, You know, compare that with like the the equivalent of spreading out to a bunch of cities that are all different (laughs) is exactly what we were saying about LinkedIn with having potentially a lot of different markets that you need to treat simultaneously. It's almost like if you're going to expand the scope of your marketplace to be very broad, you better be very, very good at basically data science, at figuring out how to classify the type of supply that each of those individual demand points are looking for and how to be an an effective matchmaker when you do have this vast sea of uh, things you can't assume that you could have assumed if it was a much more narrow pool of, uh, of supply. Which maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but really brings out sort of the uh, or, or brings up sort of the the value of data science in in a modern marketplace. Well, let's go there. We have one of the best people in the world to talk with us about this. <laughs> We've talked about this a little bit on the Rover and Dog Vacay episode on our on our episode with with Phil from Rover. Based on what I lived through and saw at Rover, like I've kind of been of the view for a long time that really a, a huge huge portion of the product of a marketplace is data and data science and like getting really good around this match and everything that we're talking about. Like, I, yeah. I assume you're going to agree with me. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I do. And um, I think that one of the things I really want to call out there is that marketplaces, I think, I, you know, I've given you a lot of ways of distinguishing what they're doing. But another maybe important dichotomy is between marketplaces that are what I would call closed cycle versus open cycle. And by that, I mean that there's some marketplaces where the buyers and sellers go there and the match happens, and maybe they don't collect a ton of information post-match. So think about like advertising, a lot of advertising markets. You know, It's not really clear if the platform eventually finds out 
you know, how well that ad worked out for you, right? Because somebody goes to your site. The famous closing the loop problem. Yeah, that's right. Um, but there's a lot of marketplaces that are really closed. Um, so like Airbnb, you know, the payments get processed through Airbnb. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, incentives provided for both guests and hosts to leave ratings for each other. Um, Upwork, it's the same thing. Employers and and uh, freelancers rate each other. You know, Upwork really manages the whole thing. I mean, the thing that actually drew me to Odesk in the first place was this idea that like labor markets are as old as human history, basically. <laughs> and this is, here's a closed labor market potentially for like the first time, you know, this like at scale digitized closed labor market. It was as a, as a scientist, it's like an amazing experience to see that. Man, Odesk makes you, once you sort of glimpse the very few types of jobs and, and work that is actually done in Odesk, it makes you just like yearn for the future where maybe all labor is done that way. I don't know if maybe it's overly idealistic, but it, it does sort of paint a dotted line toward could we live in a world where sort of all work is hyper dynamic and and uh, very modular in the way that Odesk labor is in, in this very sort of narrow se- segment. I'm going to be careful not to go there because I feel like you guys could do an entire episode <laughs> on the future of work and what that's going to look like. And I have a bunch of colleagues, you know, that that spend most of their time thinking about this. Why are we not there yet? You know, yeah. But at least like thinking about it kind of more, a little bit more narrowly through this data science question that you asked about. I think uh, the reason this kind of closed cycle marketplace is really a fascinating uh, study in how data science can transform business is that if you think about what we need to be able to make better matches, the first thing you would ask for if you were a data scientist is information on past matches, right? I, I mean, anyone who knows anything about machine learning, what do you need to do good machine learning? You need kind of labeled examples, mm-hmm. right? You need what worked, what didn't work. Well, if you run a closed marketplace, you're just generating these examples every day because you're a closed marketplace. So what's great about kind of a closed cycle marketplace is that you really get constant training data to be able to make better matches from your marketplace itself. And, you know, that that kind of cycle back um, from having algorithms that provide search, provide recommendations, provide matching technology, provide pricing, seeing what the outcomes were, then feeding that right back in to make it better the next time around. Uh, that's actually probably, I think, one of the most exciting aspects of data science in a marketplace. I mean, it presents a lot of interesting challenges too. So you have to be careful not to just kind of convince yourself that what you're doing is great because you know what you're doing looks a lot like what you did before. <laughs> you really need to make sure that you're constantly experimenting and trying new things. Kind of an interesting aspect of data science inside these marketplaces is the role of experimentation yep. and making sure that you're able to like confidently validate yeah. uh, new strategies. Yeah, let's well, I want to talk about experimentation in one sec, but just to put a you know even a finer point on everything we were just talking about and the role of data and product at a at a marketplace it always blew my mind uh, you know how much i learned from the rover experience and then here learning from riley about at airbnb you know what when you run a search on both of those marketplaces like you talk to people and they'd say well i don't understand exactly how data is helping me and how machine learning is making this better and and you don't realize that when you run a search on airbnb the results that you see are very different than the results that somebody else would see who's running a search concurrently in the same place. And like the the function of the search bar and the results that are given, like that is like has such an impact on conversion, on the business, on your propensity to book or not book, even when the user on the demand side is actually choosing supply versus the marketplace making the match for them. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think what you said is true, even in marketplaces where maybe it's not so personalized, either because of sort of fairness or ethics considerations or, or just because it's not feasible to do so. In the end, one of the most important things that search engines did for us in principle was take a, a litany of options and make it into some structure that we could interact with. The cognitive friction of sorting through options will basically never go away. Arguably, mm -hmm. it's gotten much worse in the last decade. That's like a very fundamental role of data science. And I should add that that's a place where data science meets product design pretty immediately. At least speaking at it from the data science side, there is a hubris that can set in where you kind of say like, I'm going to let the data speak and I kind of know what's best because I'm close to the data. One of the things that's important is that, uh, you know, when you're building search and recommendation tools, these are things where they're really right in front of the user. And there's often small changes to the way those things are designed from a product perspective that have a first order impact mm -hmm. along the lines of what you're saying. Yeah. So I, I guess one plea there would be, uh, you know, to ask data scientists <laughs> to work productively with their PMs. With, because, with their PMs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, like a good point. You know, I, I think maybe one example of that is like, you can optimize your way into a, a local maxima, but not a global maxima. We saw this at Rover with um, in New York City in Rover when people would run searches for sitters for for their dogs. You know, we returned results on the map, same as we did in many other cities, but we didn't realize that like transportation in New York works really different than in other cities. And actually what users cared a lot about was where sitters are on subway lines that they were close to, not as much on like geographically, how far away is this sitter from me? Yeah. And so we totally revamped like, like, but if we had just like run our machine learning algorithms on it that we were doing across the rest of the country, like we wouldn't have necessarily seen that. Another kind of similar example like that is that a lot of search engine, I, I shouldn't call it search engines early, but just like when you start, and you display search results, the simplest thing to do is display them in time order. Mm -hmm. So like eBay, right? What's the simplest way to display listings? Just like which ones showed yeah, up. Most first, reasons, which yeah. Exactly. That's really sort of uh, an early stage solution. And you could see lots of reasons why just listing things in time order is probably not the best thing. I think Craigslist might still be in time order. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think you're right. Uh, Simply times. <laughs> but, you know, I, th I think you, it also creates like weird marketplace dynamics because it means that you're constantly delivering the most visibility to things that are most recent. And that makes it a lot harder. You know, think about freelancers or, or employers in labor markets. It makes it a lot harder to really kind of build up a profile because you're not getting necessarily rewarded for good outcomes, right? So thinking about the ways in which visibility becomes almost like a currency, like something which you want to manage and you want to leverage so that uh, you're directing match attention in the right way, um, you know, that's an important yeah. part of it. Well, and then as you build up the corpus of supply and demand, if you're growing, you want new supply and demand coming on the platform. Where do you seed them in these, you know, in the rankings and in the list results? Like, becomes oh, man. super so, important. So many fun stories about that. So, I mean, I... I think one thing I've I've kind of always found interesting this this is a pattern across many you know different examples is uh, okay like you know you're you're watching your numbers and then you notice one month that your new buyers aren't doing quite as well like they're not converting as well or whatever so you're, all right you know I want to treat them better how do I treat them better I'm going to connect them to my most experienced sellers 
But then you find out that, wait a second, your experienced sellers aren't as happy as they used to be. Yeah, they like transacting with right. experienced buyers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you think about changing that over and you're just kind of playing whack-a-mole with the batches. <laughs> and you know, this, this really brings up something important, which is you know many of these markets are what are called matching markets, which basically says like, if I'm choosing to match this buyer to this seller, it also means I'm implicitly choosing not to match them to other sellers. And that externality that it's, it's very different from Netflix is how I like to put it. Like on Netflix, the fact that you watched a movie doesn't mean I can't watch that movie. Mm-hmm. But on Airbnb, if you choose to stay at a given place on a given night, I can't stay at that place on that night. Yeah. Um, this and, is, I'm laughing. I've been thinking about this a lot recently because Jenny and I host on Airbnb whenever we're out of town. We, we list our house. And um, recently, we've been getting a ton of requests from people that are new to the platform and have no reviews yet, which means obviously Airbnb is sending them our way. You got to you got to auto like, disable that. That's a, uh, that's a recipe. Well, no, for... we have it so that you can instant book if you don't have any uh, reviews, but you have to contact us. And it's like, uh, you know, it's really frustrating. Like, sorry, uh, no, no social proof, no validation yeah. that you're gonna <laughs> keep my house safe. I guess the way I'd like to talk about it is what's the level of certainty of the thing that you're you're getting from the market. The simplest example is impressions versus clicks versus conversions in advertising markets, right? Um, it's interesting to look at that funnel. If I'm buying impressions, uh, obviously I should be paying less for each of them because they're kind of worth less to me and, and the idea that they're going to convert or not, there's some more uncertainty there. Clicks are one, where, one step further down the funnel. Conversions are kind of the best thing. Um, what happens is, though, that you know, you're basically transferring risk over from the buyer to the platform as you go down that funnel. If I'm selling you conversions, I'd better be making sure they're conversions. That transfer of risk, that is an important choice that's made in some of these advertising markets. Mm-hmm. And I do think, like again, you could do a whole episode on the distinction between like markets for impressions versus markets for clicks and advertising and how did they... You know, how did each of those emerge the way that they did? I think this instant book example on Airbnb is another one of those. Like thinking through, like what's the level of certainty of the contract that I want to offer? The lower the certainty, kind of the more liquidity, but the lower the prices, and and then kind of the less sure people are about what they're actually. I mean, getting. actually, I think that from a product perspective, it, Airbnb has done a really nice job here, which is like if you know uh, guests who have reviews. That allow a really simple setting to allow them to instant book. But if you don't have reviews yet, you have to communicate a bit first, because then that that does leave it like hosts. You can you can decide. Maybe sounds like Ben, like you do, is like I just ignore those requests, you know, or, or I decline them. Or you could decide to accept them. The, the leverage shifts all around. If it's two days out, you know, I might accept that request. If it's uh, two days out and it's for an eight day stay, and then they're really great communicators, I'm probably going to accept that request. But it shifts the uh, sort of burden of responsibility of that trust away from a feature of the platform to letting the two parties sort of decide that for themselves. Yeah, I think that's right. I will say just as a kind of a side uh, thread inside all of this, um, I do think that one of the most important metrics a marketplace should be looking at is the is the long-term value of each side of the market. And, and or in other words, you know, to use the language you're using earlier, I think it's really important to be asking yourself, uh, you know, how happy are my experienced users? And the reason that's so important is because you're hoping the new users become experienced users. And what they're hoping is that, you know, it's worth it to become an experienced user. So I, I do feel like it's best to work your way backward from that. If that metric isn't looking good, or if there's, you know, you may have high liquidity, but high churn. Yeah. That's not a good place to be. Some marketplaces would often be better served to really make sure that you're delivering long run value for the users you have there. And then worry about that growth aspect. We're, we're so focused, I think, on growth in a, in a kind of cheap capital environment that you can sometimes lose sight of the fact that uh, 
people need something to grow into. And yeah. if, if the value's not there, they're not going to stick around. We, we have this conversation with almost all of our portfolio companies very regularly. I mean, and as entrepreneurs, and you know, they're struggling with how to balance growth versus quality and, 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 you know, looking to us often to give them signals about that, about like, Oh, what is our next round of investors? What are they going to expect? And almost always we're like, look, you have to grow. If you don't, you know, startup equals growth, right. In the words of Paul Graham, if you don't grow, you know, you're either you're dying or nobody wants what what you're selling, but we really encourage them to do it in a, like, in a way that is not compromising long-term quality. If your churn metrics are high, you basically need growth to make up for the churn. Yeah. So yeah. a simple way to address growth is just don't churn dump as often. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you, either you could dump a lot more capital into the business or you yeah, could or you you just, know, right, fix exactly. the holes in your bucket. I know you want to talk about experimentation. This is like a, a, a cousin of, of data science. Uh, I'm usually part of data science, but... I think you know one of the things I just wanted to, to mention is that I really feel like the kind of marketplace businesses that you know we all have heard about, have really they've been on the vanguard of, of A-B testing and experimentation as a way to improve the platform. And I think A-B testing and experimentation, they really have such an important role to play in these, in these markets because um, there's so many externalities of changes that you make. Mm-hmm. And many of the choices that you have to make do involve trade-offs. Some of the things that you're going to do, they're going to divide the pie differently as a way to think about it, right? Like we talked about experienced versus inexperienced users on either side of the platform. Uh, but there's other examples of that too. I mean, uh, there, there could be things which are dividing the pie differently between buyers and sellers as well. And, you know, there could be things that are kind of uh, making it easier for you know certain types of sellers uh, to be able to connect with matches on the other side, all these different kinds of things. I think it's important to understand that so much of the choice that you have to make is like where do you want to operate, what trade offs are you interested in, and evaluating those those trade offs. I think to be quantitative about it, uh, having an effective experimentation methodology is a pretty big deal. Now, one thing I will say is that I know you know most of the listeners of the podcast are probably fairly early stage, uh, either about to start or have just started, and maybe maybe we we have plenty of folks that are listening at big established marketplaces too. So yeah, great. I think it's good to think through when do you do this, right? Because it's a it's a it's a fairly kind of cost centered task to to build up that infrastructure, but I do think that as you start to scale. It's something to make sure that you you know you you get kind of give A/B testing, yeah. uh, like a serious. Well, R- Riley often talks about as they were building up this discipline at Airbnb, he and they implemented this concept of backstop metrics of like run lots of experimentation to optimize you know whatever your goal is on a particular metric, but do that without harming other metrics as that are you know up up funnel or down funnel from where where you're focused by a certain amount and that was what their their backstop metrics were so that there were some guardrails of like because you could go wild and do something that would like you know oh my objective is to increase conversion rate like well great i'm gonna lower my prices you know like the notion of guardrails um one really great thing about that exercise of setting up guardrails is it does force you to ask like what matters to you in your market um so you know, an example of this is that almost every marketplace is going to care about conversion rate from, you know, essentially, like, if you look at, you know, buyers that come on the platform, what fraction of requests or, you know, whatever it might be, like jobs convert to actually being filled. That's probably a good guardrail metric, because you really don't want to be tanking that with like something new that you do without some pretty good justification. And so I think like thinking through these types of guardrail metrics down the funnel on either side is super useful. The flip side of it is that sometimes you really have to uh, kind of think outside of the box. Um, 
And and I think for many marketplaces, that moment is going to happen when they switch from that early cold start phase where you were like bootstrapping up to where you really want to monetize search and information. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think one of the things that changes there is like, look, maybe at that point, it's going to become okay if some of your customers are not actually paying for the thing they were paying for before. Um, because now what you're really trying to get them to do is switch over to this model where they're willing to pay to be able to connect to the other side, right? That can have big influence on a lot of these core marketplace metrics, it, but it makes sense because you're changing your business model, basically. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of these things where you want to be aware of what stage of the journey are you on and tailor the metrics and your expectations of guardrails to where you're at. Ramesh, I'm going to go off script for here, here for a minute. I think we would be remiss to do an entire episode on marketplaces and not at least touch on take rates a little bit. Um, and obviously we could do a whole episode on this, but you know, in your mind at a high level, what goes into figuring out how much of the value the marketplace itself can capture? Oh man. Yeah. I'm glad you said this could probably be a whole episode that kind of lets, <laughs> lets me off the hook about having to expound forever. But um, yeah, that's, that's a very, very big question. Um, something I just want to highlight there is that you asked me how much of the value can the marketplace capture? I think at least as important a question is from who? What I, one thing I found really interesting about this is that from an econ perspective, it really shouldn't matter from who. So what we mean by that is right, like... because. Yeah, there's only, you know, there's money in a transaction. Yeah, right. right. I mean, let's say you charge the seller, like they could always pass it through. So this is, again, it's one of these places where like the the kind of technical data science side of the world has to hit reality at some point. It (laughs) does matter. It matters if you're the buyer or the seller paying. And there's plenty of evidence that the exact same fee charged to the either side, you know, it doesn't yield the same outcome. Mm. So that's rule number one. Um, And so I think it does matter. And, And that has something to do also, by the way, with, where is the friction getting resolved, right? So like if you're asking, I mean, the most extreme example is if you charge someone a subscription fee to be able to get into your platform, they don't know what they're paying for when they subscribe and they don't know what value in return they're going to get. So there's this high degree of uncertainty you're charging me up front for it, right? Contrast that with like, say again, like paying for conversions and advertising, like high degree of certainty for what I'm buying. You know, it's a different take rate potentially that that could work. But okay, so in terms of like figuring out how much of the value you can capture Again, there's so many different aspects of this, but I think one thing I'll, I'll emphasize is, um, you know, how much do you expect them to return to the platform? Because really, when you say value, right, the value isn't just the value of this match. It's mm. really kind the of... Long-term the long-term value. The long-term value of that match to each side. So you've got this participant that comes in, you know, buyer and seller, they match. They go away, they're still a buyer, they're still a seller. Mm-hmm. Now, what's going to happen after that? Are they going to match with each other again? Are they going to match with other buyers and sellers again? And, you know, so when you're asking yourself, like, how much of the value can the marketplace capture? I think you, you have to think through some of this downstream value. So there's a lot of marketplaces that are just basically lead gen, where you connect and then you go your own way, right? So now the goal of that marketplace is really to capture as much of the value as they can up front. And, and, um, and that would be common in scenarios where uh, you only are a buyer or a seller of that thing one time. You're not going to be repeatedly doing that over and over and exactly. over again. Or, exactly. Or perhaps you're monogamous in your relationship with you're that gonna buyer meet, or that seller. You're going to match once and then you're... Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I like to joke with, with uh, my wife about the fact that, you know, dating markets kind of show get too good at their job <laughs> because you kind of don't you don't necessarily want people to never come back right so uh you know it's it's important that not all the matches i've come. seen uh billboards like for hinge maybe when i was in new york that they have a campaign going right now of like 
something like we love it when you leave the platform. <laughs> Somebody like, had to do know? that for sure. <laughs> in that case, really, what's happening is that you're not even worried about disintermediation or any of those things, like the usual kind of things that that marketplaces are worried about. Much more repeated interaction, worry about. By contrast, I guess I have to say that in in most of the instances where I've been involved with marketplaces, kind of a, a metric of interest, and this goes in line with thinking about long run value of your experienced users. A metric of interest is what's the frequency at which people return. So I think one thing to think about when you're starting is like there's usually should be at least one side of the marketplace that has reason to come back often. So if you think about Airbnb, right, like the the you know the uh, vacation traveler, I don't know, a couple vacations a year, three, four vacations a year, maybe ten on the upside, right? That's you're a business not a, traveler, maybe yeah. right. And so that's that's not like super frequent. Yep. But the host. They've got a lot of nights and they're basically managing those all the time. So at least one side of the market has, you know, that high frequent interaction with the marketplace. Um, same thing on labor markets, you know, freelancers at Upwork, Odesk, you know, they are kind of there all the time. And so I, that, that is uh, one of those metrics, I think, to think about when you find a marketplace where really both sides are fairly infrequent. That's much more challenging because now what's happening is that you're, you're not really benefiting from that you know, repeated kind of closed cycle yeah. marketplace that I was talking about. It's much more one-off matching as you talked about, Ben. And and the data science, you know, benefits, the network effect benefits of that are not quite the same. I remember having discussions, you know, again, keep talking about Rover on this episode, but it's my most hands-on, you know, marketplace experience. When WAG first launched and they were doing just dog walking and we were getting into dog walking too at, at Rover and I think we just merged with Dog VK. Wag had a 40% take rate. And we're like, this makes no sense. Like a dog walker is like a very high repeat transaction, you know, model both on both sides of the market. Why would you have such a high take rate? Interestingly, I think it survived for a long time. I don't know if they've lowered it since, but uh, we're just like, God, this should be much lower. Well, you know, as, as with many things, I think the initial take rates, like who the hell knows, right? Yeah. <laughs> you just pick a number. <laughs> One thing that's changed, I think, is that there is a little more, I don't know what to call it, kind of social norming around take rates. Like, you know, there's like the norms of around 15, 20% in the ride sharing mm -hmm. industry, you know, in, in labor markets, it's kind of 10%, something like that. And lodging, it's sort of 10, 15% range. So I think it's it's rare now that you'll see like the 40% take rate. But maybe one other thing I'll just add to this is that it is useful for entrepreneurs to retain some flexibility in exactly what that take rate is going to look like. And you could do that a number of different ways. You could do that basically by explicitly saying, you know, the final take rate is going to be something between X and X. And, you know, that'll be determined as a function of kind of the transaction, the timing, all that stuff. Or, you know, you could say like our take rate's actually something high and then you're discounting it down for now. Uh, you know, there's a number of different ways to handle it. But one of the reasons that's so important is that the marketplace changes over time. It goes back to this theme that a marketplace is not always a marketplace when it starts. And that means that what you're monetizing and therefore the rate you're monetizing it at mm -hmm. could look quite different now and in the future. Uh, you don't want to hamstring yourself um, into saying that, you know, every transaction is going to be exactly the same. There's going to come a time where, I mean, if you think about search and information, if that's really what you're monetizing, you know, that maybe does mean you want to shift to a model where you monetize a lot of the match up front. If what you're monetizing is, say, payments or something like that, and payments is an ongoing uh, aspect of the relationship, then that might be something where it's like a percentage over time. Those are really different. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you commit that, hey, I'll just never change my take rate, 
you know, you, you can potentially lock yourself into, yeah, into something a, you don't want. Business model. So Ramesh, you might be able to help me dispel something um, that I've sort of thought for a long time. You can tell me if sort of myth or fact, but the reason why Uber or Lyft can justify almost twice as high of a take rate as, as Airbnb is because the supply is a lot more commoditized. And any platform where you have a relatively commoditized supply, the quote-unquote work or more of the work or more of the value is being delivered by the platform itself rather than the, the, the supply itself. Whereas if you have something extremely differentiated, like unique vacation homes everywhere, then they can actually justify taking more value in that transaction. Is that true or am I am I overfitting some model to a very few examples here? So let me preface this by saying, and I should, probably should have said this sooner, that definitely anything I say on the podcast is my own view and <laughs> should not be attributed you to got any it. of the companies. I mean, you work with every with. great marketplace company you know, close to it. So right. it's not like, yeah, we can't stay away from everything. I think, I think one of the reasons it's hard to answer that question observationally by what we see in the market is that we're not in steady state yet. You know, and, and I think you could see that in the dynamics of the ride sharing industry and most other marketplace industries. So, you know, when we think through like, what is the sustainable take rate? Kind of one of the challenges is that uh, we don't know what the eventual market equilibrium is going to shake out at, right? And taking the way you framed it and putting out the pros and cons of that point of view. So on one hand, it's true that when things get commoditized, then potentially the value of the platform is, is relatively speaking, at least relative to the supplier, is higher. Any informational advantage the supplier might have had sort of starts to evaporate if there's a commodity there. The flip side of that, though, is that when things get commoditized, competitive pressures grow. Competitive pressures from other platforms, and kind of that's what you see in you know many of the delivery industries, right? And so that's a little hard to you know, work out kind of what's the eventual equilibrium because you've got one of the advantages when you're operating in a more sort of informationally heterogeneous market environment, or at least one where the suppliers and, and the buyers have, you know, some information that prevents it from being a commodity is that it also means it's harder for a new entrant to build up an advantage against an incumbent. And this, by the right. way, highlights... In a situation like that, it really is a lot of value of being where all the buyers and all the sellers are. Yeah, and I think this highlights something about data science that I didn't get to say earlier, by the way, which is that um, there's actually two types of incumbency advantages that scaled marketplaces have. One is kind of the obvious one that like buyers are... You, know, you want to be where all the buyers are, you want to be where all the sellers are. But the other big one is that, of course, now they have a library of data built up on what works. And you know, so to your point about commoditization versus not, the thing is that data incumbency advantage of a scaled marketplace is much higher when you do have that heterogeneity. Because mm -hmm. now you know a bunch of stuff that other marketplaces like could try to enter don't yet know about, you know, what kinds of matches work, what kinds of matches don't work. So anyway, this is all a long-winded way of saying the usual academics answer, which is that it depends. <laughs> and I'm just gonna cop out. Um, you did segue nicely into, I think, David's next question here, which I'm going to steal from you because I'm already talking, is, you know, how do you think about competition, especially in uh, a world where we are now where there's sort of two things. One is with the advent of the internet and smartphones and everybody being online all the time, we theoretically are in one globally connected market for everything, which is what everyone in ride sharing thought, but is not quite ma what materialized. So at least we're in a uh, winner take most or um, some sort of world where there is a race to go and get a lot of supply and a lot of demand quickly. And, and that, you know, allows you to have staying power. The second uh, thing about w the world that we're in right 
right now is one where, as you brought up earlier, capital is wildly, wildly available and accessible. And if if it is clear that something is working and uh, investors and founders and everyone believes it to be a winner take all, there's this massive acceleration into, you know, trying to take all. So how on earth should entrepreneurs think about that with sort of this access to global markets quickly through the internet and the, the capital ecosystem we're in? When capital is so abundant, I think that's an interesting environment to be in because you can't defend against that, right? So I don't think that should ever be the goal. I mean, you basically have to accept that that's the race you're playing and you hope that you win in that race. I don't think I don't think one walks into that saying, I'm going to defend against abundant capital because in the end, remember that the one of the three approaches to scaling a market is subsidy. And mm-hmm. if capital is abundant, you're willing to subsidize. It doesn't matter, you know, how much you've yeah. scaled your network effect. I just pay people and bring We've them over. We've seen this so much in, in, in a bunch of markets over the last right. five years of just like somebody might have a better market or might have a better product or might have a better lead or might have a data science advantage. And somebody else comes in and dumps half a billion dollars in subsidies. In, like Yeah. And I think, you know, I think part of that is uh, there's like, a, again, another episode you guys could do on sort of efficient social capital allocation and like what should society be doing? And I think you know a lot of that is tied to the way in which we reward capital. Um, and and I do think that, that as a as an academic at least, that's something that does bother me um, because I think there are a lot of social benefits if marketplaces can scale. And you know the, the good side of marketplaces is really that there's a lot of frictions that they're taking away that you know none of us like. The bad side of marketplaces is that. With concentration, you know, comes market power and many of the adverse effects of market power. I think, as a society, we're probably not grappling with that on the right terms. It's, uh, you know, I think so. There's a lot. There's a lot that you guys could go down that road. But coming back to this question of we'll like, have comp- you back for our antitrust episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but coming back to the competition for, you know, I, I want to take more like the founder entrepreneur's perspective. Like, how should they think about competition? And the the phrase that you know I was telling uh, David earlier that I like to use is durable market advantage. It's so when you think about scaling, one part of scaling is that you've brought a lot of buyers and sellers onto the platform. Well, I guess what I want marketplace entrepreneurs to be careful about is the fact that buyers and sellers have shown up, it does not mean they'll stay. And so the question you want to ask yourself, and this I think is a question you asked from the beginning, why do they stay? So why would you want to still be here even after you've been able to transact? The first piece of that question is you transacted once why do you come back again? That comes back to the frequency issue we brought up a second ago. The next piece of that question is, you've transacted again and again. Why do you transact with more than just the same counterparty? Right? What, do you, what value are you deriving from my presence here? You know, one thing I find so interesting about the pace at which the Valley and, and uh, a lot of these businesses move is that because things are changing so fast, everybody's very short-termist. But that's from a strategic standpoint, can be a real problem because you're not thinking through this durable market advantage question. All your lampposts are focused on short-run metrics. You forget to ask yourself, if I scaled, would I have a thing that I could defend against competitively, right? And I do think that's important to think through. Uh, You know, I recognize that there's a lot of short-term versus long-term pressure in delivering business value. You know, we can see in many different industries with marketplaces or these competitive pressures, if you get scale, but you can't defend the scale, yeah. then it's not really kind of, you know, it's not durable market advantage. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Well, when you come up with like 
the right you know algorithm for <laughs> developing durable market advantage can you please tell us first and then give us like a, a couple years head start yeah and then we can tell everybody else it, there's there's a reason i'm an academic if i was that good at it i probably wouldn't be at stanford <laughs> wait i'm not gonna just let that lie like come on i'm sure you're great at it <laughs> well i think that's a great seg into maybe our, our last question or our last kind of couple questions here is like given all of that if you were to be a marketplace entrepreneur or the marketplace entrepreneurs you talk to or, or us at wave what are some areas that you know would be interesting I, either particular markets that would be interesting to attack from a uh, or start to build a marketplace in or just dynamics that you would look for i know in our early days one of the interesting conversations was about in, in talking to potential investors in the fund, what's the scope of the opportunity? Yeah. And, oh, man. So many LPs asked us, like, haven't all the great marketplaces already been built? Like, what yeah, else is and, to be built in the future? And I, I guess what I found out through that sequence of conversations is that really, like, that the common mentality is that it's marketplaces are a vertical. There's manufacturing, there's energy, there's, like, automobiles, and then there's marketplaces. <laughs> and that was really interesting for me because I don't think of them as a vertical. I think of them as a business type. And once you think of it as a business type, it's really kind of, you know, running across potentially every vertical. So, you know, when you say what markets or areas do I think are ripe? I mean, commerce is part of every vertical. So in principle, every vertical is ripe for disruption. And, and you know, like you brought up earlier, the example of, of scrap metal, and I brought up the example of, you know, contractors on oil rigs. I mean, like, would you have thought of those as yeah. sort of... I wish we had those at the tip of our tongue when we were fundraising for our first fund and right. we could have said to LPs like, yeah, here are some examples. Here are some examples, yeah. right. And and so, yeah, I that's my first answer is that I just, I sort of think um, in principle that the benefits of digitally intermediated marketplaces are basically, you know, the, the, the scope for that is unlimited. There's a different question which has to do with where you can create durable market advantage, right? And we can get a lot of business value. And that may not be in every one of these, um, you know, potential verticals. But I guess two that I'll highlight that I like, and then there's kind of one other broad comment I want to make about this. So one of them is labor. I continue to be fascinated by labor. And I've always had a soft spot for the kind of work that, that Upwork does. I, it was great for me to see the, the value that that generated for the participants in the marketplace. And so I do think that um, in terms of opening opportunity, there's a lot of room in, in how we think about labor market intermediation. And one quick aside there, I feel like labor marketplaces for a long time, people thought of like, oh yeah, like LinkedIn or Hired.com or like recruiting, right? And like... I think that was a little bit of a red herring and like, yeah, there was value, but I mean, obviously LinkedIn had a lot of value, but like, that's not what we're talking about now. Yeah. And I think that partly has to do with this question of repeat interaction, Yeah, right? Um, it's again, closed cycle versus open cycle marketplace. And, and I, I think you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I, I imagine that's kind of what you're alluding to is that a lot of the kinds of labor markets we're talking about now are really where there's more of a closed cycle. Yeah. And you really do get those benefits of... You're um, not, it's not recruiting of helping somebody hire an employee that's going to be a W-2 employee for them for a long time. Right, right. Exactly. I mean, LinkedIn does have components that look more like this closed cycle marketplace now, as, as Ben brought up earlier. Um, but yeah, definitely kind of conceptually, I think that's a major, major distinction. To dive in on labor a little bit, you know, it seems like 
like the first couple decades of creating labor marketplaces, you know, starting with Mechanical Turk and Odesk Elance. And we started Spare 5, which recently sold to, to uh, Uber, which um, ended up narrowing uh, tremendously all about data labeling for autonomous vehicles. To dive in on my comment earlier, work that is being modularized and being able to be done on sort of a one-off basis started at the most you know, sort of basic atomic types of work. And it would feel ludicrous today to say, you know, you're going to go and uh, on a labor marketplace, find the labor that the uh, Fortune 500 CEO does. Like that seems like that's, it's ridiculous that we would ever get there. But it does feel like we are slowly sort of taking on more and more either, uh, I guess, complex types of labor and finding ways to bring them into an efficient marketplace model rather than, David, as you suggest, do your best to expensively go and generate leads to hire them and then do work within your company. A lot of that has to do with the fact that we're just getting generally better at structuring information. Um, you know, I think things that we can do to extract information from free text now were not possible you know, 10 years ago. And that's really changed the notion of what information, say, a job post or a, a, an employment profile contains, right? So that's as kind of methods in AI, machine learning, natural language processing, image recognition advanced, that all of that has kind of spillover effects on the types of markets you can intervene in. The other actually meta statement I was going to make about, about uh, markets is, I actually think there's opportunity in sort of platformizing the creation of markets. There are pieces of building these marketplaces that are repeated and that I think we can, you know... It's funny, somebody in the acquired Slack uh, brought this up as an idea recently and I was maybe a little um, pessimistic on it, but I, I want to hear your I want to hear your bold yeah, take. Yeah, I this. think I understand your pessimism. I think it's a challenging thing to do. The thing that stands out to me here is that the idiosyncratic part of a marketplace is often going to be defining the characteristics that matter, as we said earlier, on on the buyer side and the seller side. Which is exactly why I was pessimistic on the idea. Yeah, but the the flip side of that is that the algorithmics of matching and of recommendation and of search there ought to be a way to package those hmm. so that at least for an erstwhile marketplace to get started, it doesn't have to do all this from scratch. And, you know, already, like, there are, you know, platforms for search, right? So are there platforms for matching? I mean, not really. And and, and the question is, like, is there an analog of that? Is, are yeah, there platforms yeah. for two-sided pricing? You know, is there yeah. an analog of that? So that's maybe a little bit of the academic in me speaking, but I do think this is yeah, a thing no, we're that's thinking. Yeah, no, that's true. Kind of like Elasticsearch, but for marketplace matching for matching and yeah. for price exactly yeah. exactly yeah i mean there are enough companies i mean to your point there's now a very successful thriving labor marketplace for oil rig workers like they're gonna be a lot more yeah <laughs> you know? that's right exactly yeah it goes back to this thing that, you know I, I got to that point because i realized that really you could intermediate in anything and yeah. if you lower the friction of getting there then of course it makes it opens up the number of potential opportunities that can be built so the last comment I just wanted to make on this, I said I had kind of one broader point, and that's partly a personal point, but uh, something I've been reflecting on is just how we can bring what we've learned through this, I don't know, let's call it a decade of uh, marketplace innovation. How can we bring that to sectors of our economy that otherwise probably just aren't going to have access to it? So here I'm thinking about kind of public policy. You know, I live in the Bay Area, things like urban transit. What are the things we've learned here? You know, how can we, how can we bring those insights out? And so I do think like something that's interesting for entrepreneurs in this space to think about are, you know, how that process of matching and of, you know, reducing frictions, how does that play out in actually helping solve 
policy problems. I'm particularly interested in urban policy problems. So simple one here is like housing, right? I mean, matching mm-hmm. for housing is a huge problem. Part of that is an entrepreneurship opportunity, but part of it that I would like, you know, us as a sort of technology community to think about is how we engage more productively with what the urban public policy problems are. That goes for transportation as well. It goes for healthcare. It goes for labor. And every single one of these, there are kind of first order public policy questions that are associated with the markets that they're intermediating into. And, you know, historically, I think that engagement has always been kind of lagging, right? It it always happens. Lagging or adversarial. Or even adversarial. yeah. Yeah. And my view on these things is that the reduction of frictions should be a net social benefit. So then the question is, you know, how do you end up in a more productive interaction with the public, you know, policy domains that that you're influencing that way? Again, partly my academic hat speaking there, but I think in the end that's kind of a win-win for everyone because you, you, if you are a scaled marketplace and you're successful with that barrier to entry, you know, you are going to bring on this kind of antitrust magnifying glass, and it's better to be proactive and engage with that than it is to kind of be caught flat-footed. So, amen. Amen. Well, Ramesh, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your your vast marketplace knowledge, uh, not only with us at Wave, but here on Acquired too. Where can listeners find you? Obviously, your, your students are very lucky to take your courses at Stanford, but where on the internet can, can folks find some of your work? You know, I've got my Stanford webpage. It's not the sexiest thing in the world, but it's, uh, you know, but it's... Um, we, might need but, a, we might need a vertical labor marketplace uh, for <laughs> that's you. Right, yeah, that's right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it's got a bunch of stuff that I've, that I've worked on there. And um, there are uh, a few places where talks I've given have been recorded. And so um, in particular, there's uh, one, uh, it's called The Engineer is Economist. Um, it's a play on an old paper by Al Roth called The Economist is Engineer. And the idea of that talk is really that engineers are building marketplaces. I mean, you think about most of the people employed at these marketplaces in the early days, it's often a lot of engineering talent that's getting it off the ground. They don't really realize that when they make that choice about how bidding is going to work, how pricing is going to work, how matching is going to work, they're they're doing the economics. They're being economists. They're yeah. being economists, exactly. And and so I really wanted to get people thinking about what it means to engineer markets and, and uh, you know, kind of the operational challenges of that. So, you know, there's a few talks like that that I think would really help uh, cool. your listeners. We'll link to them in the show notes. Ramesh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having we really me. really appreciate it. Yeah, this has been awesome. We'll see you soon. Listeners, thanks so much. And we'll see you next time.